Welcome to Growing Through Grief. I'm your host, Diana Curtis. Growing Through Grief is a weekly sprinkle of education and inspiration to help you take action that leads to personal freedom and greatness. I share powerful conversations with grief experts, spiritual advisors, and other courageous souls in this transformational podcast. I believe with the right support and the power of community, you can eliminate unnecessary prolonged grief. I'm here to teach you how to normalize, recognize, and use grief as a growth tool. I've been a champion for growth for decades since the loss of my mother. Together, we are growing. I'll give you weekly tips and small steps that will move the needle forward so that you are experiencing a healthy inner relationship with yourself. Let's get started. So hello again, and welcome to the Growing Through Grief podcast. I'm your host, Diana Curtis, and I am so glad that you're here. So today we have a powerful guest, and I just know without a shadow of doubt that he's going to be dropping some really, really great nuggets for you. So if you haven't yet, before you start listening to this podcast, go ahead and get your journal because he's going to be giving you some great information here. And his name is Jay Westbrook. Jay Westbrook is a multiple award-winning clinician and visiting faculty scholar at Harvard Medical School, who specializes in grief recovery in adults. He holds a master's degree from USC, is an RN certified in hospice and palliative nursing, and he's an advanced grief recovery specialist. He is nationally recognized as an expert on grief and loss and the end of life issues. He's a national speaker and the author of Compassionate Journeys, Lessons from My Work with the Dying. So welcome, Jay. Thank you. So pleased to be here. Yes, I am more pleased to have you here, and I'm grateful that you said yes when I asked, and I know my audience is going to be very, very happy to hear what you have to share with us. So I shared a little bit about who you are, and normally what I like to ask is to share with the audience your most compelling grief story whatever that is, the one that you feel sort of tripped you up the most and kept you in that I believe when we are grieving that it pushes us into a growth period. So share with the audience what that is for you. There are probably two. I, I would ordinarily say when people say, what's your biggest grief experience is the love of my life, Nancy. 11 weeks to the day after our 42nd wedding anniversary died in my arms in our home on hospice with pancreatic cancer. And certainly the ground went out from under me. That being said, it wasn't an unexpected death. We had a chance to get so complete before her death. And because we had lived such a full life, lived fully, loved deeply, 
and done so much healing work together on our relationship and on each other that I had tools. It doesn't mean the pain wasn't immense, but I had tools to process that. I think the way you worded the question, the biggest grief experiences were that set of experiences that grew out of profound early childhood sexual abuse, social isolation, and physical torture. The three went hand in hand. Mm. So am I hearing you say that there is no separation between the loss that we experience as a child versus the loss that we experience as an adult? Does it sort of activate the pain from the past? Your current loss activates the pain from the past. I think it does in people who haven't done the healing work. Grief is cumulative and extremely patient, and time does not heal anything. Time passes, but it doesn't heal. And yet that's one of the primary tools we hear again and again throughout our lives. Time heals all wounds, just give it time. But here's the analogy. If I broke both of the bones in my forearm, and I don't mean sticking out through the skin, just fractured both bones in my forearm, and I did nothing to heal them, they would knit back together. Mm -hmm. But that arm would never have the strength or function or flexibility that it was intended to have. And the same is true of my heart. If my heart is broken and I do nothing over time, it will mend back together, but it will not heal, meaning it will never have the strength, the function, the flexibility, the ability to be vulnerable, playful, spontaneous, unguarded. And so the healing work is so important. And I have done the healing work on all of those early losses. So when Nancy died, the grief was, maybe it's not the right word, but localized. It was really about missing Nancy, my partner, missing the love of my life, my best friend, our romance, being known by somebody and so deeply and knowing them so deeply, the un, the nonverbal communication, the closeness, the intimacy, the all of it. I missed that, but it did not trigger old pain because I've done the healing work, the grief recovery work on that old pain. So when you talk about your beloved Nancy, it makes me happy to hear your story and how it sounds to me that you have been able to turn that pain into love. You honor the love and the experiences you had with Nancy more than you honor the pain. Yeah, my uh, reframing of the experience is small price to pay for a lifelong love affair, small price to pay for a lifelong love affair. And it was hard to take my wedding ring off, but I did it. 
I took my wedding ring off. I took Nancy's ring and my ring to a custom jeweler in Beverly Hills. And I said, melt the two rings together and make me a new one that's wider and thicker. And, and that's what I wear today. And I'm so glad it feels like Nancy's right there with me. Mm. And I'm also acutely aware that entrance fees are so low. Oh my God, you eat your ice cream with a spoon? <gasps> so do I, we must be made for each other. That's the entrance fee. Exit fees are just heart shattering and there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. You know, every relationship ends in one of two ways. Somewhere along the way you break up and it's agonizing or you stay in love and stay together right up until one of you dies and it's agonizing. And so exit fees are very high with a parent, a child, a sibling, a friend, a pet. And my reframing is just small price to pay for a lifelong love affair. That's all I can do with it. So I heard so many little gems in what you've just shared with us, but I want to make certain that if anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you miss what Jay said about, let me just call it nugget number one, (laughs) time heals no wounds. (laughs) We hear that all the time. So if you're a journalist, write that down. That is just beautiful. And the other thing I heard you say, Jay, is, We're never separated from our loved ones. We are separated physically from that body, but in terms of that presence, that spirit, that energy, whether it's bonding the ring together and you get to remember her every time you look at your finger or whether it is the phrase that you created for the two of you, it's we can recreate, we can continue to create experiences with our loved ones, even though the physical body is no longer with us. So that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank Thank you for sharing that. So I would like to go back to something else you said about your childhood experiences. I heard isolation. I may have heard abandonment. That may be my word because that's my childhood experience. But I know I heard you say isolation, and some sexual rape violation there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you were able to come overcome some of that? Sure. So, I mean, the quick and dirty story is mom went out the door when I was five months old and never came back. Dad remarried when I was two and a half. At three, they wanted to focus on their career, so they gave me away to a family and thought, I'm sure that I hope (laughs) that the family was a good family, but they weren't. They were monsters. And at three years old, I was locked in a pitch black closet, terrified of the dark. And I lived, ate, toileted, slept. That was my existence, a pitch black closet, pulled out once a day to be washed, physically tortured and raped by three adults, the 16-year-old son, his father, and his grandfather, all of whom lived under the same roof. And that was my fare for the next three years. I was six years old before I was pulled out of that situation. And a lot of things happened during that time. Understandably, I developed a huge hate and rage that was unsafe 
to turn on my perpetrators at three and four and five and six years old. So I turned it on me. And that didn't stop when I got out of that closet. I was filled with hate and rage focused on me and all of the behaviors that go with that. I lost my innocence, a sense of safety, a sense of security, a sense of stability. I lost the ability to trust, the sense that I could say no and be heard and have it respected. I lost any sense, evolving sense that children are supposed to develop of a sense of mastery over their environment. I lost any playfulness and spontaneity. My alarm system became dysfunctional because the abuse was so constant, certainly became hyper vigilant, always having a, a huge response to any noise or anything that might be happening. Socially retarded, and I know that may not be the politically correct word, but the developing sense of social function, the ability to interact with others was retarded, was suppressed because I didn't interact for three years with any other children, just with these three adults and in an abusive situation. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, so uh, those, were the lo- those were the losses that came out of it. Yeah, you just described that some of those ACEs, we call them the research community causes adverse childhood experiences. Uh, abandonment started at five months and two and a half years old. And then you're moved into an environment where you are sexually violated at will by three grown ups. And then you shared with us how that showed up for you later in life, that it was self-hatred as opposed to projecting it on someone else, you continue that that cycle of violence against yourself and being socially challenged. And all of those things you just described, you and I talked a little bit about this. These are the intangible losses that people don't associate with with grief, you know, loss of trust, loss of innocence, loss of security. And I forget some of the other things that you said. People don't tend to associate those with grief events. <laughs> These are things that causes us to grieve because as a young child, that's not normal as an adult, actually, <laughs> but certainly not as a child. So we heard the pain, we heard the pre-healing and what it looked like for you. Tell us a little bit more. How did you show up in the world as you began to just as an adult and then a little bit about post-transformation. You know, it's very interesting. I I don't have it accessible, but there, there tends to be a lot of comparison among survivors, you know, and people hear my story and they go, oh my God, you know, I had that in my childhood, but mine was just touching or mine was just this man exposing himself to me, or my father would always walk in when I was in the shower or in the tub. And so he was a voyeur and it was just, and that word just needs to go away because here's what we find out when we look at the studies that in the adult 
the consequences are the same, whether the event in childhood was penetration, touching, exhibitionism, or voyeurism. It doesn't matter because the, and so I have this drawing and I looked, I could not find it. And it's a beautiful big tree and it shows the roots underneath the ground and they're labeled childhood incest, sexual molestation. And then the branches are drug addiction, alcoholism, perfectionism, promiscuity, eating disorders, difficulty parenting, suicide attempts, isolation. And those are kind of universal in people who have had childhood sexual abuse without regard for whether it was this specific act or that one. So what we want to do is recognize the magnitude of the damage that's done and let go of the comparing. And and when you come to grief, that is certainly time heals all wounds is one of the myths, but the idea of compare the loss so that you, I used to feel badly when I had no shoes until I met a man with no feet. We all hear that. And the intended message is don't sit in self pity, but the unintended message is compare your loss and ignore and minimize your loss because someone else's is worse. And it's just not true with grief. Right. So if we have a car, two cars, each with a mom and three kids in the car, and they both go down the road and they're both in a wreck. And in the first car, one of those three children dies. And in the second car, two of those three children die that second mother is not hurting twice as much as the first mother. They're both hurting at 100%. And so the idea of compare the loss and people are taught how to acquire things, not how to lose things. So there's always that group of people that come with what we call silver lining statements. Well, you should be glad that you had Nancy so long. Yeah. I am. (laughs) And my heart is breaking. It's an intellectually true statement, but my heart is breaking, not my intellect, so it doesn't help. Or at least she's not suffering. Well, but I am. Well, you know she's in a better place, but I'm not, you know. Or a mother who gives birth to a stillborn baby And somebody says, well, you're young, you can have another. As though kids are just interchangeable. One dies, you just have another. And maybe you do have another, but it doesn't ever replace the child who died and the relationship that you built with that child over that nine months of that pregnancy. So there's a dismissiveness in our culture of loss because that's what we're taught from early on. How do I acquire things? Attention, affection, toys, allowance, friends, pets, grades, boyfriend, girlfriend, driver's license, college, career, house. We're not taught how to lose things. Right. Wow, that's good. That is good. I love that. 
tree analogy about the roots and the branches and then we can go into the leaves and all of that is really kind of how we live our life isn't it like a tree yeah. <laughs> like a tree and I know David Kessler I think is his name one of the experts out there he say all the time that my grief is always going to be worse than yours whether I lost a pet or something else, and you lost a person, our pain is going to be greater than anybody else's pain because it's our pain. So when we begin to compare, there lies the suffering, number one. It's just more suffering, whether we're comparing you have this and I don't have it. There lies the suffering. Yeah. So thank you for that. And you're right. It's all abuse, whether it's the touching or the gazing or watching or stalking, whatever. <laughs> it's all abuse. And mm-hmm. let's not compare it. So very, oh, I love that. I love that. So Jay, we talked about my audience is mostly women. And we know that there is sexual violation against both men and women. Is there anything... Or would it be the same, whether you're a man or woman, anything that you would share with a woman who may be struggling right now because she was sexually violated, raped, tortured? Yeah, you know, there's so much that is dependent on the situation. So I wasn't going to go there, but I will. So I got pulled out of that closet at six and periodically re-victimized. And we moved to California when I was 15 and I found drugs and alcohol. Thank God they were a solution. They were not a problem. They kept me from suiciding. They kept, let me stay on the planet, but over time they made me stupid and the stupidity led to bad decision-making and the bad decision-making put me in front of a power greater than myself. And on my very first encounter ever with the criminal justice system, I got sentenced to the penitentiary. I wasn't afraid because I knew nothing about it. And I just didn't want to leave Nancy, but I had no choice. And off I went and I lasted five hours before I was gang raped for the first time. And it happened throughout my incarceration. When I got out of there, I was filled with so much rage and blame and anger and cowardice and irresponsibility and probably more than anything, massive, massive shame. And here's something that's not talked about often that is so difficult. And um, in people who are in a situation where the rape is ongoing, like mine was both as a child and in the penitentiary, people who have that experience. It does not happen to every person. And it even if it happens, it certainly doesn't happen every time. But I will tell you that there were three times during the period I was locked down where I was being raped and beaten. And if you looked from the outside, you would say he wants it. He's enjoying it. Mm-hmm. He's into it. And internally, I was screaming, no, Mm -hmm. and externally, my body betrayed me and responded to the stimulation because when God made us, 
as spiritual beings, human beings, intellectual beings, emotional beings, sexual beings. He, the wiring is there to respond to stimulation. And the shame attached to that was more traumatic than the actual beating and physical rape. And the, the self-hate and self-loathing that it created took massive amount of work to overcome and to heal. And I think that when you start looking at these issues, you say you have to look at whether or not that's happened. You have to look at the difference between stranger rape, maybe it's date rape with someone you know, maybe it's just being, not just, maybe it's being attacked on a one-time basis by a stranger. Maybe it's a woman who's been married for 50 years or 40 years and her husband has Alzheimer's, mm. has no idea who she is. And one afternoon the caregiver is away at his son's graduation, the male caregiver, and she's alone and her husband rapes her. And not only does it feel like rape, even though it's her husband, he has no idea who she is. It also feels as though her husband has cheated on her because he's just had a sexual experience with a woman other than his wife. He doesn't know it's his wife. And the trauma of being betrayed by your best friend, your lover, your husband, your partner. So they each are very traumatic, but they bring different elements that require different modalities of healing, different a sensitivity to what the secondary losses are. There was a betrayal in the Alzheimer's rape that didn't exist in the stranger rape. Does that make sense? That does make sense. I've never heard a story like that. So thank you for sharing that. You mentioned that you had to do some massive work in order to heal the pain of gang rape, beaten, and your body betraying you, I think is what you said. Can you share with us what that work looked like for yeah. you? There are three primary aspects of it. I think grief recovery, which is uppercase G, uppercase R, it is a very specific evidence-based intervention, the only one that's been proven by academics to heal loss. And so that's one piece. I've had to do a huge amount of the grief recovery work. And I've been trained and certified as an advanced grief recovery specialist for 28 years. So I do that work now, but I did the work on my own losses. The second is the idea of reframing. So without any discounting of the magnitude of the trauma and the loss, we have a responsibility to find another way to tell the story where at the very least we're not a victim and where at the most we're a hero. So I can talk about the delayed development of social skills from having lived in that closet, but I can say that was terrible but it gave me 
the ability to be alone with myself mm. and comfortable with myself. I can talk about that horrendous incest and torture and the suffering that that created. And I can also say, but you know what? The truth is that as an adult, that became, that suffering became my vehicle for awakening compassion in me and for me and for others. And my mess became my message because that intimate and deep relationship I forged with suffering, co-journeying with that suffering for so long has what has allowed me to be an amazing hospice nurse, to go bedside with the dying and their grieving families and the people who are dying or grieving. They're losing not just a wife, but everything and everyone that they care about. And I can be with that emotional suffering, that spiritual suffering, that physical suffering, and bear witness with a compassionate presence and not impose my tools unless and until invited to do so. And that all is a gift of that profound suffering that I went through. I lost my innocence and I can never get that back, but it has made me so protective of the innocence of others. And so I'm a man who is very conscious of that and behaves and conducts himself in a way that preserves the innocence of others. Yes. So number one, the work included, number one, the grief recovery method, which you and I both do. I'm also an advanced grief recovery uh, specialist, and I know how powerful that work is. Number two is the reframing without really discounting what happened, but reframing in a way that you're moving from the victim to survivor and really seeing, I'm cautious in using this word. I I tend to say that grief is a curious gift if you move with it, because on the other side of that, there is a gift. Your phrase was, I developed a relationship with suffering, which to me means you allowed whatever needed to come out. You just moved with it. You covered it with grace and moved with it as opposed to stuffing and swallowing and drinking and sexing it or, you know, numbing it with alcohol because it needs to come out. Now, I did not catch the third one. I didn't mention it yet. (laughs) The third one is no one's going to like this. Oh, and I want to say that you said to going from victim to survivor, that's just a stop on the train. I want to get to thriver and survivor is not the goal for me. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. I want to be the hero of my story. The third is forgiveness. Oh, yes. That is hard, but here's the deal. We forgive for ourselves so that we're not sitting filled with bitterness and blame and rage and hate and a desire for vengeance and a constant looking back over our shoulders. Because right in front of us could be a lover, a friend, a career opportunity that's waving its hands And we don't even see it because we're looking back at the past. And the road out of the past 
back to the present is forgiveness. We forgive for ourselves. And it doesn't mean that I approve, excuse, condone, or forget what happened. It doesn't mean that I ever necessarily trust the person again. It doesn't mean that I bring them back into my life, but I forgive so that I make a decision to forgive because I can never have a better yesterday, but I can have a great today. I do it so that I can be free. And there is a story of these two kids, 17 years old, they enroll in the army, they go off to fight in World War II, they're both wounded, captured, held prisoner, tortured, and eventually liberated. And they come back to the States and decades later, as old men, they meet at a World War II veterans reunion. And they missed up their tears in their eyes and they hug. And the first one says, oh, my God, it's so good to see you. I need to ask, have you forgiven our captors? And the second one screams, never. And the first one goes, ah, well, then I guess they still hold you captive. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I don't want to be held captive by the three people that were raping me when I was three and four and five and six years old. And here's what else I know, that not all victims become perpetrators, but that almost all perpetrators have been victims. Mm. And I know that that before I came on the scene, that 16-year-old son was probably being done by his father and grandfather. And before he was on the scene, the father was probably being done by the grandfather. And at some point, the grandfather, as a young boy, was probably being done by other people. And so if I really use Mm -hmm. my suffering as a vehicle to awaken compassion in me and for me and for others, then at some point, I extend the compassion not only to myself, but to anyone who in this moment is being victimized and then eventually to anyone who has ever been. And because of what I just said, I'm suddenly reaching for compassion for my perpetrators when they were in the same situation I was in. Wow. Mm. I've heard the phrase so much, and you just described it. Hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Healed people help heal people. So I am so grateful that you and I are on this call, this show, to share not only your story, but some things that you've done in order to heal and overcome that. Compassion is a principle that I worked on for at least a couple of years when I too started to go through deep, intense healing process. And my number one principle, second to love, I should say, was compassion. So share with me, share with us, what do you mean when you say compassion? Self-compassion first. Well, it's just compassion. I mean, it's like pregnancy. You're pregnant or you're not and you're compassionate or you're not. Being compassionate towards other people and brutal towards yourself is not a compassionate stance. 
So I think it's overall, I am spent almost an hour on the phone this morning before I joined you with a, a young woman I'm working with. She is so brilliant and has drive and energy and intelligence and is in, is educated and articulate and and accomplished and has the same kind of background that I have. And she pushes everyone away. Good people in her life, friends, lovers, get so angry and drives them away and came to me for help. And we talked about the idea that it probably has to do with self-hate and that the solution is to cultivate a compassionate relationship with self. And I said, here's how you do it. You need to get in front of that mirror and be eyeball to eyeball, not eyeball to chin or eyeball to forehead, eyeball to eyeball. And you start with a formal introduction. Hey, I know you know, but I'm Jay Westbrook. And, um, and my heart is breaking because I have a lifetime that I need to share with you. And I hate you so much. I just am consumed with hate and I want to find a way for us to heal that. And I'm going to need your help. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how to do it because I just want to see you die. I hate you. And yet I don't want my life to end. And if we don't make this work, that's going to happen. So here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to start fighting for you instead of against you. I'm willing to start fighting for us to find common ground and a way to love and move forward together instead of being in this constantly adversarial position. And I'm going to stop talking for a minute. I'm going to close my eyes and and wait to feel a shift where I become the person in the mirror and you become the woman that just said the words that were spoken and tell me what you're thinking. I don't have time to go into it all, but the idea is starting to create a dialogue. And the first time she did it, it was so hateful and so rage filled. And I said, it sounds to me like you got in front of that mirror and you were fighting with the woman in the mirror rather than fighting for her. And so this mirror work out loud, eyeball to eyeball, back and forth, closing your eyes, changing places with the person in the mirror, saying, opening, saying some more, closing your eyes, changing, can lead to such powerful healing. But it's really hard work, really hard. And um, most people do it the first time and they kind of giggle and they feel silly talking out loud to... And that lasts 10, 12 seconds. And then it starts getting so real and so powerful and so difficult. But the rewards are immense. Wow, that is good. You just demonstrated how to go from self-hatred to self-compassion. Just you alone, you in the mirror, the woman in the mirror. (laughs) Yes. So, Jay... Time flies. Yeah. Before, I know. Before we end, I would like to ask you, 
And I'm so open to doing a part two. There's so much more that I we share. But anyway, for this episode, is there any one or two things briefly, one or two things that you would leave our listeners with? And then we're going to talk a little bit briefly about what, what you're up to. Sure. Do the work. Do the healing work and do it gently. When you get in front of that mirror, you remember that the person that you're looking at that you hate has endured profound suffering and stop separating yourself from them. That separation that we learn that I learned it at three and four and five and six years old. I learned how to dissociate. I learned how to separate from myself, from my body, to be up on the ceiling, looking down at what was happening to me. Mm. And those, that just becomes habit, inertia, momentum. It's a fear-based behavior. And, and the idea is to start making friends with that person in the mirror, mm. to come back and, and unite. You know, we have such profound suffering that we've shared. Let's get well together. You're not the enemy and neither am I. So I think that's, that's a good starting point for how to do some of that work. And certainly the grief recovery work is, and the forgiveness work. Yeah. Yeah. So normally I recap, but it's important that people go back and just listen to this because there are just two minute nuggets to recap here. And your last statement about the disassociation, I know that we all have some pain and confusion. Every single person in this world, a lot of it stems from childhood. And when it's so painful inside of the body, we don't want to go in there. So we're out there, we're doing this, we're doing that, and we're projecting on other people and we're spreading our pain. So I repeat what you said, Jay, to the audience, do the work. It will be very different depending on who you are, but the work has to be done in order to release it, or you can spread it and Stay in that place for the rest of your life, but you don't have to. So with that last question, what you been up to? What are you doing? Did any of what you just described to us propel you to do this grief recovery work? Is there anything else? We'll certainly share your social media links and so people can get in touch with you because I know they're going to want to. But anything else you would like to share in terms of what you're up to? Well, sure. We can do that real quick. Jay Westbrook is how to reach me on Facebook. I do not accept friend requests that come without a message attached telling me why you're reaching out or where you heard from me. My website is compassionatejourney.com. Compassionatejourney.com. You can find out about me, how to reach out to me. I have a book that is absolutely amazing set of 28 standalone stories on how to co-journey with the grieving and the dying. It's called, well, it's on the website, compassionatejourney.com. And no, I didn't get into the grief recovery work because of this. I'd been working in hospice for two years, and I just saw that the grief work that was being done with families after the death and with families and patients before the death was inadequate. And I learned about grief recovery and I saw its power and I got trained and certified, but I got into it to complement 
hospice work and be better able to serve my patients and families. These days, I do more grief recovery work with people that have intangible losses, the losses of internal qualities, loss of dignity and faith and self-respect and those kinds of issues, or childhood sexual abuse and and still do some grief recovery work with people that have death-related losses, but it's a broader sense. And once COVID started, I retired from bedside hospice nursing. So now I'm focused solely on doing grief recovery work and some couples counseling. And then my speaking, I speak a lot around the country and, and my book. Yay, that is a lot. And that is so beautiful. Thank you for what you're doing to serve us. And I'm so appreciative that you said yes when I asked you to come on the show. And I'm also looking forward to having a part two sometime in the very near future. So to my listeners, I know this is very helpful for you. And I will see you next week. In the meantime, keep growing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Growing Through Grief and being part of this loving community of women. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share and spread the word. Let's help all women become richer and more nourished in their heart so that they're able to just keep on rising. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas, or you would like to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly at coachingtotheheart.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. In the meantime, keep on growing.